1: Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the Agenda, giving a chat about two of the biggest volcanic eruptions ever to have taken place in recorded history. The eruptions of Mount Tambora in 1815 and Krakatoa in 1883, both taking place in what is today Indonesia. These two volcanic eruptions are the first and second most deadly eruptions in, as I say, recorded history. Not, not in history altogether, as we'll as we'll chat about, but in recorded human history. Um, both of them taking place reasonably close to one another and uh, within just a few decades of one another as well. You've probably heard of Krakatoa. Uh, It's by far the more famous of these two eruptions, which is very interesting because it was also the less powerful and less devastating of the two by quite a significant margin, as we'll talk about. Uh, But in any case, both volcanoes came with huge death tolls causing devastation in not just their local region, but uh, around the world. They killed tens of thousands of people with ash and smoke and pyroclastic flow and tsunamis that were all generated by the eruptions. But as I say, global consequences too, altering the climate, causing cold temperatures around the world, acid rain, reduced sunlight and interestingly, some spectacular works of art. On a global scale, Mount Tambora was much worse, an absolute disaster. It eruption caused food shortages and famine, as well as widespread disease and illness during the the so-called year without a summer, 1816. Um, And while Krakatoa didn't have quite the same consequences, there are still some very interesting details about the volcano and its eruption that we will, of course, get across today. Don't you worry. But before we get stuck in... A quick thank you goes out to alert listeners Dr. Amy Hughes and Paul Johannesson. Great to hear from the pair of you, both suggesting Krakatoa as a topic, but you know, I, thought I thought I'd throw in Mount Tambora there as a little cheeky, cheeky little bonus for all the volcano fans out there. Anyway, let's get underway. We've actually never done volcanic history before, a bit of half-assed geology today. How about that? Here we go. Let's get to it. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1815, to the Indonesian island of Sumbawa, uh, which uh, back then was part of the Dutch East Indies. Mount Tambora is generally considered to be the largest volcanic eruption in, as I say, recorded human history. Although, compared to some of the other super volcanoes that have gone off long before we were writing stuff down, or or perhaps even around at all as a species, Mount Tambora's eruption was barely a fart in an elevator. I can tell you, for instance... 75,000 years ago, another eruption in Indonesia, the Toba Eruption, almost wiped humans off the face of the Earth altogether after blasting up to 13,000 cubic kilometres of volcanic material into the atmosphere, causing a massive volcanic winter. The Toba Eruption blanketed half the planet with ash. The Indian subcontinent, thousands of kilometres away, was covered to a depth of 15 centimetres, and it affected the the planet's climate for the next 1,000 years, which almost wiped humanity off the face of the Earth. As I mentioned, it almost killed us. There were only a handful of humans left uh, in the wake of this eruption, only, only a few thousand. But we got through it, the population rebounded, and, and here we are today, 75,000 years later. Anyway, um, similarly, the flat landing brook formation in New Brunswick, Canada, this was also created by the eruption of a supervolcano of similar size to Toba, although this happened... 465 million years ago. So we're a little less certain of the consequences of that one, but uh, we do know that it was one of the biggest volcanic eruptions ever ever to have taken place with thousands and thousands of cubic kilometers erupted uh, ejected from it. Uh, and of course, very famously, Yellowstone National Park in the United States is just one great big supervolcano that could go off at any moment and has done several times over the years truly massive eruptions have taken place in Yellowstone countless times over the last few well over the last few million years but still it counts in geological terms that's not that long. Um, the biggest of them all was around 8.7 million years ago when the Grays Landing super eruption ejected almost 3,000 cubic kilometres of material. These eruptions, by the way, all of these super, super volcano eruptions, they're all measured as an 8 on the Volcanic Explosivity Index, or VEI. 8 is as high as the scale goes. Each step up the scale, the scale is 10 times bigger than the previous one. It's it's logarithmic, I believe. Um, so a VEI 8 eruption is 10 times as big as a VEI 7 eruption, which is 10 times as big as a 6, and so on and so forth. Except between VEI 2 and 1, for some reason, they decided that that one would be 100 times bigger, not 10. Not sure why. Anyway... A VEI-8 eruption includes any volcano that erupts with ejecta of over 1,000 cubic kilometres, which is then said to be a supervolcano. And thankfully, these don't tend to go off very often. The most recent one was, uh, well, again, in geological terms, recent, just the other day, um, the Orinui eruption of uh, the Taupo volcano in New Zealand it was around 25,000 years ago so you know just just a heartbeat away um and this means that we probably should be okay for the time being with uh, from supervolcanoes uh vei8 eruptions are estimated to take place every 50,000 years or so so we we should be all right but even so volcanoes can be very fickle very unpredictable things and so it is possible that there could be a supervolcano eruption at any point so uh get ready i guess maybe i don't know how you would but just just now you are now now you can consider yourself to have been duly warned um to put things in perspective when talking about supervolcanoes right um 1000 cubic kilometers is is 10 trillion liters um this is a volume that is just impossible impossible to properly conceptualize these explosions blast so much volcanic material into the air um, the Great Pyramid of Giza is 0.0026 cubic kilometers, so a supervolcano eruption at a minimum would equate to over 384,000 Great Pyramids of Giza being blown sky high. So again, not really something we're able to properly conceptualize, these numbers are just too big, but Suffice to say, supervolcano eruptions are huge, they're massive, they're so incomprehensibly colossal that I'm sure you'll join me in hoping that we never have the misfortune to experience one. Anyway, enough about supervolcanoes, Mount Tambora was not a supervolcano, but its eruption was still enough to cause food shortages and famines all around the world to cover areas over a 1,000 kilometres away with volcanic ash to fill the atmosphere with ash and toxic gases and change the very climate of the planet by lowering global temperatures for years. And all of this came from a volcano that was only a VEI-7. It only had a ejector of 180 or so cubic kilometres, only 69,000 pyramids worth. So if that's what an eruption classified as a VEI-7 can do, just imagine how bad a VEI-8 would be. Anyway, back in 1815 on the beautiful island of Sumbawa... Trouble was brewing deep beneath the surface and had been for quite some time. An enormous chamber of magma had been gaining pressure beneath the surface and ended up to the point it was overpressurized to the tune of 4 or 5,000 atmospheres with a temperature of 7 or 800 degrees. So this thing was getting ready to blow. Between 1812 and 1815, the volcano had been rumbling away. There'd been dark smoke spewing from vents, forming great big ash clouds above it. And the people on Zimbabwe were probably, probably a bit worried by this, to be honest. They went around harvesting their timber. Zimbabwe is still famous for its sandalwood and wood, tending to their animals and their farms, hunting in the forest and whatever else, and thinking, oh, bloody hell, this, this can't be good. Bloody volcano's got an upset stomach. Hope it can just, you know, take a Pepto-Bismol and avoid the worst of things. But... Uh, Oh, no, it wasn't to be. On the 5th of April 1815, the largest and most powerful volcanic eruption in recorded human history took place as Mount Tambora exploded. This eruption spewed ash and rock and gas into the air. But more impressive than anything else about the first eruption was the sound it made. The ear-splitting explosion was heard up to 1,400 kilometres away in Batavia, in modern-day Jakarta. People heard the sound that the volcano made as it it erupted. They're over a 1,000 kilometres away, and of course they had no idea what was actually making the noise. Hearing a noise from over 1,400 kilometres away is absolutely absurd. It's as if a volcano erupted in Melbourne and people in Brisbane heard it. It's the distance between Barcelona and Berlin or Chicago and Boston. It is a huge distance for sound to travel, but that's just how loud the explosion was. And it got worse, too, as the days continued because Mount Tambora continued to erupt for another five days. And then on the 10th of April, kicked into a new gear. Massive. Deafening new explosions rocked the island as the mountain blew itself to pieces, blasting out huge chunks of rocks that rained down on the surrounding area. Ash and gas belched from the volcano, and pyroclastic flow, which is to say lava, solid rock pieces, ash and volcanic gases, raced down its sides at impossible speeds. Eyewitnesses reported that the entire mountain looked like it was turning into liquid fire as billions upon billions of tonnes of rock were ejected from Mount Tambora. The eruptions grew in power and intensity, and after forming a plume up to 45 kilometres into the air, ash blocked out the sun and rained down across an area of thousands of kilometres And once again, the thunderous explosions of the volcano were heard over incredibly vast distances, not just the 1,200 kilometres to to Batavia or Jakarta. People heard this eruption in Sumatra, over 2,600 kilometres away, 2,500 kilometres away, and it was loud enough that over there they still thought it was gunfire. This is a distance greater than the distance between Melbourne and Cairns. It's further than London to Athens. It's around the distance between Los Angeles and New Orleans. I'm I'm kind of struggling here to really get across just how big this eruption was, which which makes it all the more terrifying that it was in the grand scheme of volcanic activity not even at the top end of how big volcanic eruptions can get. But let's talk about the eruption's impacts and consequences, which uh, which actually might Help to express just how colossal this eruption was. We'll start with we'll start with local and regional consequences, and then move on to its global consequences. Because, as I alluded to before, this eruption affected people all across the world, not just people nearby in Indonesia. So, firstly, the effects on Mount Tambora itself. Right, this is an interesting one. Uh, prior to its eruption, it was four thousand three hundred kilometers high. Right, one of the one of the tallest mountains in the Indonesian archipelago. After the eruption, it was only. 2,850 metres high. It had blown itself to pieces and lost about a third of its overall height and had been reduced instead to a massive caldera around crater-like depression at the top. Um, It's still like that today. So as I say, it's blown a third of itself away, pretty significant change to the local environment, but nothing compared to the rest of the island of Sumbawa. Mount Tambora continued erupting for uh, for weeks, for months, uh, before finally stopping in mid-July 1815. And by that point, there was no vegetation left on the island. Everything on Sumbawa had been blanketed in ash, over a metre of it in some places. And so plants everywhere had been burnt and smothered and had therefore died. As for the trees, they'd been uprooted and washed out to sea by the pyroclastic flow combining with the pumice created by the volcano to create vast pumice rafts thousands and thousands of meters long you might have seen pumice um sometimes you use it in in your shower to like scrub the bottom of your feet it's a it's a rock that often or maybe always i don't know i'm not a geologist pumice can float on water i don't know if it always does but it is a rock that that floats on water and often when uh, volcanoes erupt anywhere near a great big body of water like like the sea or the ocean um they will deposit pumice into the water and create great big floating rafts of it which can float around before eventually breaking up and and I don't know actually what happens to pumice rafts after they break up presumably they don't sink I've got no idea maybe fish build their houses out of it anyway tens of thousands of people were killed by this eruption either by the pyroclastic flow or as victims of the famine and disease that struck the island after the eruption with no plants of course there was no food uh, survivors lost their farms their livestock their houses everything and even those who scrounged up enough food to live were still at great risk of disease from polluted water because volcanic ash filtered down into water sources everywhere and as people drank this this uh impure water they got very sick and it wasn't just Sumbawa either the the neighboring island of Lombok Tens of thousands of people died there, either buried in pyroclastic flow or through famine and disease. And it's very likely that people on other islands too, Bali, East Java, um, they were also affected by, by famine and disease because of the volcano. But that's not all that the neighbouring islands went through because these islands were also hit by a massive tsunami tsunami that was created by the eruption, waves as high as four metres slammed into the surrounding coastlines, killing thousands more and destroying even more settlements and homes. So all in all, the final local death toll from the eruption is is difficult to estimate. Um, It's thought to be north of 70,000 people, could even be higher than 100,000 people. No matter how you slice it, an absolute disaster. But the effects of the volcano weren't limited to just the Indonesian archipelago. Oh, no, the effects of Mount Tambora's eruption were felt globally, I can tell you. This eruption was so enormous that it affected global temperatures, temporarily shifting the world's climate in its wake. Mount Tambora brought on a global volcanic winter, causing the deaths of countless thousands of people all around the world. Let's chat about this now. Volcanoes, when they erupt, they release all sorts of very exciting chemical compounds into the atmosphere. Mount Tambora, no exception to this, it uh, emitted carbon dioxide, hydrogen chloride, sulfur dioxide, hydrogen fluoride, and dihydrogen monoxide, or to give it another name, water. Uh, Probably the least exciting of all the chemical compounds it released, but all of these other chemicals, right, they were quickly carried around the entire world on global wind currents, and they had a swift and devastating effect on people everywhere. The sulfur dioxide caused people around the world to develop lung infections as the sulfur got into their lungs. Uh, The hydrogen chloride caused acid rain to fall, which destroyed crops everywhere. But more important than any of that was the effect that the eruption had on world climate, caused not just by a combination of all these new chemicals in the atmosphere, but also residual volcanic ash particles. While all the heavy ash particles fell back to Earth and blanketed the area around Mount Tambora, the finer, lighter ash particles, microscopic, right, these things, tiny, 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 they remained suspended in the atmosphere, blown hither and yon. And these particles blocked and reflected sunlight, meaning that less of the light and the heat of the sun reached the Earth's surface. The sun was actual, actually visibly dimmed by these ash particles. And this, exalted listener, had an absolutely devastating effect on human civilization all the way across the world, from the Americas to Europe to Asia. 1816 is remembered as the Year Without a Summer, So profound was the change in global climate. Global temperatures plummeted with disastrous consequences. Across the Northern Hemisphere into June and July, their their summer months up there, frosts and freezes continued for weeks and months. It would snow in New York in June, for instance. And you can imagine what what sort of effect that had on agriculture. Crops everywhere failed. Frosts killed them. Harvests were ruined. And as a result, people died starved and this came at a truly terrible time for the people of europe who were struggling to recover from the devastation caused by the napoleonic wars that had just wrapped up episodes 211 212 get across them famine and disease was already something in that the people in europe were worried about and it spread even faster and even more terribly than before as crops and harvests failed as the food supply crashed as, as livestock died and Because of all this, the price of food skyrocketed, leading to riots in the streets of many European cities over the price of bread, the biggest and most violent riots that Europe had seen since the French Revolution. In India and China, unseasonable monsoons caused widespread flooding, killing people not just with the floods but also with the cholera that came after it. In North America, waterways that had been used to transport goods froze over, meaning what little food was grown couldn't be transported to some cities, only making food shortages worse. And just about everywhere, it rained and snowed far more than it usually did. There was 80% more precipitation in 1816 than usual. In some places, too, the, the rain and the snow carried volcanic ash down with it. In places like Italy and Hungary, there were reports of the snow that fell being red or, or brown. And the next two years saw similar patterns, although nowhere near as bad as the, the year without a summer. was 1816. Um, and the death toll from the widespread famine brought about by all this is absolutely incalculable. However... There is one final consequence of the eruption of Mount Tambora that I want to tell you about, one that you might not have expected and one that is not, I'm glad to say, as tragic as all of the others. All of the stuff that was spewed into the atmosphere by Mount Tambora, it had, uh, it had another effect. It changed the colour of the sky, particularly at dawn and dusk, as it created long and brilliant sunrises and sunsets, deep Rich oranges and reds and brilliant purples and pinks filled the sky as evening approached. And this led to the creation of some truly stunning pieces of art. As painters like J.M.W. Turner and Caspar David Friedrich incorporated the striking colours of the sky during this period into their work. In fact, go and have a look at Friedrich's um, 1810 painting, The Monk by the Sea, And then compare it with his 1817 painting, Two Men by the Sea. And you'll you'll see what I'm talking about in how it influenced and impacted these visual artists. Anyway, between irreversibly altering the landscape of Sumbawa, blasting an incomprehensibly large amount of volcanic material into the sky, causing the deaths of tens of thousands, perhaps, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people, and changing the very climate of the planet... The 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora should be one of the most famous volcanic eruptions in history. After all, it is the biggest eruption we have ever properly recorded as a species. And in geological terms, it happened about half a second ago. But for all of that, Mount Tambora is overshadowed by another eruption that took place not too far away and not too long afterwards. Despite being smaller and much less devastating... The 1883 eruption of Krakatoa is much more well-known than Mount Tambora, and that's what we're going to get into right now.
0: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
1: Krakatoa can also be found in what is today Indonesia, although these days they're... uh, there's a lot less of it than there used to be. You can, uh, you can find Krakatoa to the west of Sumbawa on the other side of the island of Java in the Sunda Strait between Java and Sumatra. Uh, before 1883, Krakatoa was, uh, it was a smallish island. It was about nine kilometres by five kilometres, three volcanic cones rising up into the sky, although not overwhelmingly huge ones. The tallest, Rakata, uh, a name that is used interchangeably with Krakatoa in Indonesian, Uh, It was only 820 or so metres tall, so way, way smaller than Mount Tambora. Um, The island also has two small neighbours, Verlatan Island and Lang Island, or or Sertung and Rakata Kessel, as they're known today. Um, At the time of the eruption, Krakatoa was uninhabited, happily, uh, as were the islands surrounding it. The Dutch had made some attempts to settle the island, but uh, this hadn't led to very much, and in 1883, happily, no one lived there. Um, And really, in the grand scheme of things, Krakatoa was pretty small, a smallish island with a smallish volcano. But in 1883, it was the source of the second deadliest volcanic eruption in history, second only, as we've said, to Mount Tambora 70 years previous. Here's what happened. In the years leading up to 1883, Krakatoa had been rumbling away, as volcanoes do. There had been quite a few earthquakes, for instance, some so powerful that they were felt all the way off in Australia. But then in May 1883, people passing by the island noticed that steam, smoke and ash had begun to plume out of Krakatoa's volcanic cones. Never a good sign. I imagine they turned their ships around and sailed off very quickly. And um, this smoke, this ash, this steam, as time went on, rose higher and higher into the air to a height of around six kilometres. So it was it was visible from a long way away. Uh, and this plume of ash had been accompanied by a few smallish eruptions, and, and and when I say smallish, they could still be heard in Jakarta or Batavia as it was back then, over 150 kilometres away. But, as you can imagine, this was just the opening act, because Krakatoa was about to put on quite a show for everyone. By the time we get to late June 1883, two enormous plumes of ash could be seen rising th- from the volcano for miles around and, and the continuing eruptions from Krakatoa were becoming more intense and more powerful, so much so that they were affecting the local tides. Ships moored in nearby ports had to be chained to the harbour side, so wild were the tides, and great big pumice rafts were spotted in the waters all around Krakatoa. A very brave, or perhaps very foolish, or maybe even both, topographical engineer named H.J.G. Furzenar He actually landed on Krakatoa around this time to investigate the island and he made what would prove to be the very last map of Krakatoa before it erupted. He observed the near total destruction of all vegetation on the island, just burnt and blackened tree stumps, and he observed ash falls to a depth of half a metre. And his professional recommendation after having visited Krakatoa was a very bloody good one he advised people to stay a long way away from the island and not to try to land there like he had. And as I mentioned before, it's a very good thing that there wasn't anyone on the island because after the 27th of August 1883, there wasn't much island left for anyone to be on. On the 25th, eruptions kicked into high gear, and on the 26th, the ash plume reached 27 kilometres into the air. Near-constant eruptions were causing small tsunamis to ram into nearby coastlines, and ships in the Sunder Strait were hammered by falling chunks of burning hot pumice. But then, on the 27th of August, a series of four massive, mighty explosions saw Krakatoa properly go for it once and for all. And the third explosion, the largest of them all, was so loud that it was heard in Perth, in Western Australia, over 3,000 kilometres away. And that's not all. It was heard in Mauritius, almost 5,000 kilometres away. That is, roughly speaking, the distance between New York and Dublin, across the Atlantic Ocean. Krakatoa's third explosion is thought to be. Check this out. This is so interesting. It is thought to be the loudest sound in history, the loudest sound ever to have taken place on Earth. It was heard at around 180 decibels by the people 160 kilometers away in Batavia. Now that's just a number, right? 180 decibels. Sure. How loud is that? Let me. Let me. I'll try to get across just how loud 180 decibels is, right? Decibels scale in a non-linear fashion. I. I Think it's logarithmic as well. I'm not completely certain on that, but it, it, it seems very complicated. But the bottom line, the bottom line is this: 180 decibels is it's so loud, man. It is so loud, right? Well, you, let's let's talk about that in in relative terms to other sounds that you may be more familiar with. Um, a vacuum cleaner, right? A vacuum cleaner is, uh, I would say, annoyingly loud. Um, they're usually around the 70 decibel level. Uh, By way of comparison, a normal conversation is around 60 decibels or a bit less if you're not American. Um, But 60 decibels is 10 times as quiet as 70 decibels. So again, logarithmic, I think, Um, while 80 decibels is 10 times as loud. So an alarm clock, for instance, or or a food blender, that that comes in at at around 80 decibels. That's 10 times as loud as a vacuum cleaner, but not 20 times louder than normal conversation, 100 times, right? Because we go up by an order of magnitude every time we go up by 10 decibels, it's 10 times louder than the next one. So it compounds pretty quickly. By the time you get to above 85 decibels, you, you start to run the risk of permanent hearing damage through pro- prolonged exposure, Um, A motorbike or a lawnmower is around 100 decibels, a thousand times louder than a vacuum cleaner uh, because we've gone up by 30 decibels, right? 10, 100, 1,000. So you can see how loud we're getting. A jackhammer at 130 decibels is one million times louder than a vacuum cleaner. By the time we get to gunshots, fireworks or, or jet engines, we're at 140 to 150 decibels. And they're just... There just isn't all that much that goes beyond that. Um, Apparently, an unsuppressed Remington 700, which is a type of rifle, uh, it comes in at 167 decibels. Um, Additionally, and quite interestingly, the the website that told me this also explained how um, suppressors, or silencers as they're called, they're not silencers at all. Uh, James Bond films kind of make us think that suppressors have guns just make this little like, pew, sound, uh, barely audible, but... In fact, a suppressor, um, according to this website, if you put a suppressor on, for instance, a Walther P22 pistol, it takes it from 157 decibels, so definitely loud, it takes it down to 116 decibels, which is about as loud as a chainsaw. So yeah, guns are very, very loud. Um, I don't think I've ever heard one fired up close, but... They are super, super loud, more or less the loudest noises that you're likely to to hear. Well, hopefully not too likely to hear, but you understand what I'm saying. But Krakatoa was even louder than this. At a distance of 160 kilometres, its explosion was 180 decibels, 1,000 times louder than a jet engine at takeoff. This is just... Incomprehensibly loud, and this is at a distance of 160 kilometres. Imagine how loud it would have been at the actual volcano itself. There are a few poor sailors who got a taste of it. Men aboard the RMS Norum Castle, which wasn't too far from Krakatoa, they had their eardrums ruptured by the eruption. These 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 poor bastards. So as I say, potentially the loudest noise in history produced by Krakatoa when it erupted, and that, as you can imagine, is just the start of it. This explosion was so powerful. It was four times larger than the biggest nuclear weapon ever detonated. The Tsar bomber, episode 197, for all the details on that. History of nukes, get across it. Um, And you probably won't be surprised to learn that the island of Krakatoa was obliterated by these four eruptions, almost completely destroyed. Just a, a little bit to the south survived. Krakatoa was only only a vei-6 eruption it didn't even get to seven it ejected 25 cubic kilometers it didn't get to the required threshold of 100 to be a vei-7 but uh, most of its ejector was dumped into the sea causing huge tsunamis that battered the region and these huge tsunamis spread out across the sunda strait with waves of up to 40 meters slamming into surrounding coastlines completely wiping out small settlements that were dotted along them. So I said before that Mount Tambora had uh, created tsunamis, waves of up to four metres. These waves were ten times as large because, of course, Krakatoa was so much closer, being smaller, so much closer to sea level and dumped so much more material into the sea, whereas Mount Tambora, much bigger, much bigger island, less of its uh, volcanic material ended up in the water. Um, But it wasn't just tsunamis, either. Ash, which rose to a height of 80 kilometres, landed on the area surrounding the volcano, rendering it completely uninhabitable. Uh, In parts of Banton to the south, people fled the falling ash, fleeing for their lives, and they never returned. Once the ash had dispersed over the years, uh, these regions were reclaimed by jungle almost completely, and parts of Banton, where many people used to live, and now, even today, uninhabited national park but the people who got away they were the lucky ones again between the burning ash and the poisonous smoke between the tsunamis and the destruction that the, the the tsunamis wrought tens of thousands of people lost their lives over 160 settlements were completely destroyed and another 130 were seriously damaged most of the damage being done by the the colossal tsunamis created by the eruption as i say uh, some of which, by the way, ripped things like coral formations out of the sea and dumped them ashore. The official death toll reported by the Dutch East Indies was 36,417, although it was almost certainly much higher than this in reality. For instance, um, this is unbelievable. In the year after the eruption of Krakatoa, skeletons were reported to have washed up on the east coastline of of Africa, aboard, can you guess, vast rafts of pumice. These poor people, these poor people, those killed by the volcano, some of them then travelled across the Indian Ocean on these pumice rafts. Absolutely incredible. But again, it wasn't just the local region that was impacted by this eruption. Um, Its impact was felt globally, although thankfully not with widespread starvation and disease this time. Remember how loud I said the third explosion was? Remember how people heard it in Perth, in Mauritius, thousands and thousands of kilometres away? Well, it wasn't just sound that travelled around the world like this. It was air pressure, an enormous wave of pressure that spread out from Krakatoa at over 1,000 kilometres an hour. And here's what's really interesting about this. Air pressure at this point in history was regularly and routinely measured in places all around the world. People were able to directly observe the consequences of the blast with their barometers. Because across the globe, people observed spikes on their barometers as the pressure wave hit them. And when I say across the globe, I really do mean it. The pressure that was created by a Krakatoa, this pressure wave, it, it, it travelled out in a circle across the entire World, and then if you'll believe it, once it hit its antipodal point—the point directly opposite Krakatoa, which is which is in uh, northern Colombia for those uh, those playing at home—it then right once it had reached the other other side of the world, it then spread out and crossed the world again, heading back for Krakatoa. And all in all, barometers around the world picked up this pressure wave seven times over the next four days, meaning that the pressure wave went around the world three and a half times before finally fizzling out. Isn't that absolutely incredible? It is impossible to imagine just how much power was behind this blast. The global climate was affected too. There was a volcanic winter in the year that followed, but uh, it, it wasn't as devastating as the year without a summer, thankfully. There were colder temperatures, there were heightened precipitation, there were acid rains, but thankfully the global food supply was a little more resilient towards the end of the 19th century, and so there wasn't anything like the widespread famine of 1816. Additionally, just as with seven decades ago, uh, the eruption darkened the sky with volcanic ash, which resulted in, yes, once again, artists producing spectacular works, painting the beautiful sunsets produced by the brilliant colours in the sky. British painter William Ascroft made hundreds and hundreds of colour sketches of these sunsets. I recommend that you go online and have a look at them. They're amazing pieces of work, capturing moments seen by millions of people all around the world in the wake of Krakatoa. But perhaps the most Famous piece of art that has been connected with the brilliant sunsets post Krakatoa is one that we've actually discussed on the show before, episode 237, the funniest art heists in history, get across it. Edvard Munch's The Scream. It's been theorized that the red skies in The Scream were inspired by Munch seeing the sunsets after Krakatoa all the way over in Norway, although I have to say this theory isn't accepted by everyone. But it wasn't just sunsets either. Apparently the tiny particles of ash in the atmosphere would occasionally make the sun seem light purple during the day or would make the moon appear green or blue. So a fascinating time to be able to observe the heavens in this way. And additionally, there are a few interesting scientific consequences as a result of Krakatoa's effect on the atmosphere. The phenomenon known as Bishop's Ring, where a brown or blue halo appears around the sun, Um, it is so named because of the American scientist Sereno Edwards Bishop and his observations of the sky after Krakatoa, thanks to the volcanic ash that was up in the atmosphere. Additionally, new new kinds of clouds were recorded for the first time, made visible by the ash in the atmosphere. And as scientists observed the skies affected by the ash, they identified for the first time the global jet stream which is used today in aviation to speed planes on their way eastward. Anyway, the Krakatoa eruption wasn't as big or as deadly as the Mount Tambora eruption, but for some reason it has ended up becoming more famous, which I find very interesting. I suppose it did happen more recently, and as such it was better documented, but it is interesting that it overshadows Mount Tambora, despite Mount Tambora being a bigger, more powerful, and far more devastating eruption. As for Krakatoa itself, the, the island, um, here's another really interesting part of the story. Check this out, right? <clears throat> During the eruption, as I mentioned, the island of Krakatoa was almost completely destroyed. Nearly three-quarters of the island island was just, just obliterated, blasted to bits. And so this left the little island group looking very different. Sertung and Rakata Kessel were still there. Their landscape's a little changed. Um, but nowhere... Near as bad as Krakatoa itself, of which only a small part of its southern end had survived and was still there. But then, almost 50 years later, in 1927, people noticed something remarkable. A new island where the volcano had been started to poke up above the water's surface again. The volcano was still erupting. Little, tiny eruptions that were, slowly but surely, building the cone of the volcano back up from the sea floor. In 1930, the new island was named Anak Krakatoa, Indonesian for Child of Krakatoa. Uh, And after first emerging from the water, it only grew bigger and bigger at a rate of 8 or 9 metres a year. Continued eruptions saw it grow to a height of 338 metres before... Very sadly, in 2018, it collapsed and triggered another devastating tsunami that killed 400 people and displaced another 40,000. And even today, reduced to just 110 metres in height after this recent collapse, Anak Krakatoa still erupts very regularly and apparently, yes, people can still hear it over in Jakarta, just not at 180 decibels, thankfully. We can only hope that it behaves itself from here on out and that poor old Indonesia doesn't have to suffer through another huge VEI six or seven eruption anytime soon. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. Bit of volcanic history for the first time on the podcast and, uh, it uh, it won't be the la- well. It, no, I can I can guarantee you it won't be the last. the The next quarter of us history is also going to be about a battle volcano. I was just doing a lot of reading about volcanoes. Okay, I'm allowed to. It's fine. It's my podcast. I can do what I want. Anyway, I do hope you enjoyed um, having a chat about these uh, these historical volcanoes. And uh, I don't know if we could ever really swing doing something from before recorded history, but th- those properly ancient, like prehistoric volcanoes are also super duper interesting, but we really kind of move out of history and, and firmly into the realm of geology then. So I don't know, maybe it's time for a new new spin-off podcast, half ass Geology. It'd be, I'd have even less of an idea of what I'm talking about if I did a geological podcast, but hey, maybe that'd be entertaining. Anyway, Thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of this show. And, uh, of course, I'm going to get through all the boring housekeeping stuff here by reminding you that if you go to halfasshistory.net, you'll find the contact form if you want to get in touch, uh, like so many alert listeners do every week. I appreciate people uh, writing in with their topic suggestions. People like Dr. Amy Hughes, Paul Johannesson. Thank you very much to the two of them once again for this uh, excellent topic suggestion. And so, so many others that I get uh, every week. It's great to hear from listeners. And uh, I'd encourage you, please. Send me uh, send me an email. Let me know, I don't know, how you discovered the show, any feedback you've got, anything you'd like to hear. Even if it's not a specific uh, topic, even just a realm, uh, an area, a period of history you'd like to hear more about, please let me know because it does help me sort of, um, I don't know, it motivates me to make sure that I'm reading about stuff and, and, and writing and recording episodes that, that people are interested in. So uh, it is great to hear from everyone. I apologise that I can't reply to all the emails that I get, but again, it is just a question of there being far too many. Uh, which is a good problem to have. I appreciate people getting in touch. Anyway, if you want to support the show in other ways, of course, there is the Patreon, patreon.com slash half history, where you can gain early access to shows when the shows are actually, when when the show's actually coming in time. Oops. Um, but all sorts of other stuff as well. Um, uh, behind the scenes, uh, uncut episodes, uh, show notes. And, and look, to be honest, I know recently it's been a bit of an anomaly, but most, for the most part, episodes do come out ahead of time on Patreon. Uh, just not when I'm, snowed under with a billion million things to do and a ton of international trips but the show must go on and these pod, these podcasts are coming out better late than never um anyway and also if you want to wear some Half-House history merch uh you can go follow the link on the website net. follow just click on the merch link and uh, you'll be directed over to, to the T public web, website refreshing and updating the merch shop is um it's on my to-do list uh maybe by the end of the year a couple of other things i'm cooking up for once i for, for when things settle down I, I finish up with all this international uh, travel that i'm up to at the moment uh so it uh, should be should be some some interesting things coming in the works and hopefully uh we'll, we'll get some new merch um up, up on the on the site before uh, before 2024 we'll see but uh, again before uh, before we close out the show uh the the normal reminder to tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. If you've got a friend who's really into geology and volcanoes, I would love for them to listen to this and give me their feedback on how well I did talking about things like the volcanic explos- explosivity index and pyroclastic flow and all the other exciting things I have tried to learn about while uh, reading about these volcanoes. Um. So uh, yes, if you've got a friend, enemy, or someone you feel largely ambivalent who about who is just weirdly into volcanoes, let them know half history getting across the history of volcanoes finally after all these years anyway going to close out the show of course with a question posed on reddit this one uh, about appropriately krakatoa it comes to us from redditor Nufbug, who asks as the krakatoa eruption was the loudest sound ever shouldn't the volcano really be named kraken era